And once again, can we say thank you to Terry and the rest of the Funky Thumb clan? I, I, every year he brings his professional talents in photography and videography and, and uses them and just blesses us with that. So we're just really, really grateful for you, Terry. Um, we, as we do every week, and um, we just want to kind of start by getting to know one another. So if you want to stand up, we have a question that I'd love for you to ask one another as you get to know somebody sitting next to you. When life gets stressful or overwhelming, how do you tend to respond? You know, nice, light-hearted question for this morning. Or just say hello and introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. Just curious at the outset here, who here washed you? Oh, yeah. Thank, thank you, Lee. Yeah. Okay. I thought I put that behind me. What happens at VBS stays at VBS. So I'm just curious, who here washed your car Friday or Saturday? Thank you for bringing the rain. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, this whole last week, we had just, I don't know if the, the pictures even do it justice. We had 175 children here. Many of whom, yeah, it's huge. 176, you were here? Oh, okay. True, okay. That's, that's a good point. Um, yeah, my wife has to raise three boys. Can you imagine what she has to go through on a weekly basis? Anyway, and, and I just, I just want to, if you see Danielle today, um, she does, she and Marge and the rest of her team do such an unbelievable job of organizing this thing so we can just show up. We have something like 50 or 60 volunteers just giving a week of their time to be here. It's a huge production, but it is so worth it. And we're just really, really grateful. For, anybody actually right now who actually participated in VBS in a volunteer capacity, can you stand up right now? We just want to say thank you. Okay, let's give them a hand. for. Goodness. All right. That's the most running I've ever seen him do. <laughs> All right. So the, the focus this week for the kids was to stand strong. When life gets difficult, when it gets overwhelming, when you just kind of reach an impasse and you don't know how to proceed... We have a God who is, is bigger than anything that we're going to face. And the kids were reminded that we can stand strong in Him. The same God that raises people from the dead, the same God that brings sight to the blind, is the God that loves us and calls us sons and daughters. And that's a huge lesson for them, but I think as parents, I think as adults, it's more important for us to remember. Because our kids in many ways are shielded from a lot of the overwhelming things that many of us face on a regular basis. And so today what I wanted to do is I just wanted to look at, um, you know, I, before I get there, it's really easy to say that we trust in God when things are going well. Would you agree? When things are fine, I can say I trust God all day long and it really doesn't mean a whole lot. Until, you know, because I've got, if God doesn't show up, I've still got my, my own ingenuity, my own abilities, and my own bank account that I can always fall back on just in case he doesn't show up. But what happens when we're tapped out? What happens when we reach the end of ourselves? It's there that we really find out whether or not we trust God. And it's there that God gets the glory. Because think about this for a minute. When we have things under control, when we really don't need God, and we say that we believe in Him, if things go wrong, we can always rely on ourselves. And in the end, we can kind of point back and go, yeah, I, I took care of that. Thanks, God. We'll pay you lip service. But it's when we reach the end of our rope that God truly gets the glory. 
And so what I want to do is I want to look at a, a story, one of my favorite stories in Scripture today, that really kind of epitomizes this idea of standing strong. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. I know most of you were probably there this morning doing your quiet time. Joking. It's a gold star if you were. Um, and it's in the Old Testament. You know, it's, it's Ezekiel is right before it. I should know this, but let's see, you know, Joel is, is coming kind of right after that. So it's in the minor prophets there. Here's what's going on. Daniel, this book was written around 600 years before Jesus came on the scene. It's in the Old Testament. And during that time, what happened was the kingdom of Israel was overrun by other nations. They began to, as, as they were worshiping other gods and, and began to bow down to other idols, God began to just kind of take his hand of blessing away from Israel. He said, if, if you want to worship and serve and put your trust in other gods, that's fine, but I'll show you their, their ability to protect you. And so the nation of Israel was overrun by different nations. And at one point, the kingdom of Babylon finally came in and utterly kind of wiped out the rest of what remained of Israel. They overthrew Jerusalem. They took all of the gold and silver and stuff out of the temple. They took it back to Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, said, hey, you know what I want you to do as we are beginning to scatter the Jews? I want you to begin to take the cream of the crop of the young kids of the nobility of Israel. So basically, those who are in positions of authority, I want you to pick the cream of the crop of their kids, and I want you to bring them to Babylon. And over the course of the next three years, I would like you... And Lee, would you grab me a piece of tape? I forgot to do that, and it just keeps moving around on me. I would like you to train them for the next three years, these kids. I want you to teach them how to live in the Babylonian Empire. I want you to teach them our customs. I want you to teach them how to interact with nobility. And then, at the end of three years, we'll go through and cull the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and they will go into the service of me and the rest of my kingdom. Well, we don't have time to go into kind of all the things that happened, but there were four Israelites in the book of Daniel that we find out about that really kind of separated themselves from the rest. The first guy is a guy named Daniel, the name of the book, the the guy who the book is named after. Daniel, through different things, ultimately gains the trust of King Nebuchadnezzar, so much so that he actually becomes the king's advisor, somebody that King Nebuchadnezzar turns to when he has dreams or when he needs like wise counsel. He would turn to Daniel. And Daniel, in turn says, you know, I know that you need to fill a couple of slots in in terms of leadership over the the region of Babylon, almost kind of like a a city council. I know you need some of those slots filled. So I've got these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that I would suggest would be really good for that position. Why don't you give them that opportunity? Because honestly, I know them. I trust them. I think they'd be great. So Nebuchadnezzar puts these three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into a position of authority in a kingdom where they have been exiled in a kingdom that worships other gods and doesn't recognize their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which is interesting because that's going to come into play as we come into our story here because suddenly their faith in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, comes into conflict with the king that they have been tasked to serve. So in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and six, uh, six cubits wide. Basically, 
about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He creates this massive idol made out of gold, and he sticks it out in the plain of Dura. And he calls together all of his advisors, all of his provincial leaders, all of the people that have been placed in positions of authority, along with all the people that they lead, and they all gather in this plain for the big unveiling ceremony. And he says to them, now when you hear the band strike up and begin to play, I want every single one of you to bow down and worship this idol of gold that I have made. If you're not willing to do so, you see this nice little furnace over here, got it heated up really well. If you're not willing to bow down, I will throw you into it. So, you know, there's a little bit of incentive for you. Go ahead. You are so good to me. You're right about that, buddy. Thank you. Tape it over here. I don't deserve him. <laughs> Ow. Okay, better. Technical difficulties. Um, so, long story short, they set up this, this huge idol. They say, bow down and worship it when you hear the band strike up. The band starts playing. Everybody bows down and worships, except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three guys who love and serve Yahweh. And they say, we're not going to do it. We're not going to bow down. We're not going to bend our knee. Because to do so would be disrespectful to our God. It would be basically saying, we only trust God when things are good. And we're willing to worship and serve other gods. That's ultimately what got Israel in, in trouble in the first place, was our willingness to bend our knee to other gods, to other idols. So we're not going to do it. Well, word ultimately gets back to Nebuchadnezzar. We pick this up in verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all other kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have said over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Well, this doesn't make Nebuchadnezzar happy. I mean, he's not used to having people deny his authority or to push against what he has said happened. And he doesn't even at this point know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have to remember that they were put in place simply because Daniel vouched for them and said, hey, these would be good guys for the position. So Nebuchadnezzar calls these three boys forward. Furious with rage, this is verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my God or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now, I'm going to give you another chance. When you hear the music, when you hear the harp, the lyre, the zither, and all of those other kinds of instruments that I have no idea how to play, when you hear that music, where am I? Um, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. We'll forget this all happened. But... If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, I'll be honest with you. If I'm put in a position like this, bend a knee or burn, I'm going to have an internal struggle going on in my mind. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. There's going to there's be a part of me that goes, well, I really want to be like that little girl in Columbine who stands up to, to a gunman and says, yes, I believe in God, even though I know that it could cost me my life. I want to be that. But there's going to be a part of me that is furiously trying to figure out how I can justify bending a knee. 
yes, okay, I might be you know, disrespecting or even denying God and bending my knee, but at least I will live to worship Him another day. At least then I can continue to serve Him in this area. I mean, He basically has put, you know, a couple of His kids into positions of authority. He wants us to stay here, obviously, so maybe I need to. At least this would be the stuff going on in the back of my mind, and I hope that this voice would win over this. But listen to the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to the king's ultimatum. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know we will not bow down We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I love the courage that these guys exhibit here. I mean, and it's important to remember the characters. Here you've got Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the same kingdom that has completely overthrown all of Israel. He holds all the cards, all the power. And then you've got these three kids, and they're not very old. They're living in a nation that is not their nation. They are completely at the willpower of this king. He not only holds their livelihood in their hands, in his hands, he holds their very lives. In a, with a word, he could snuff their lives out. And yet they don't respond with the type of deference you would expect to hear from people who are talking to the person who holds their lives in his hand. They almost speak <clears throat> to somebody who thinks he has power, but they recognize doesn't have as much as he thinks. They're almost working off of a different economy, aren't they? Because Nebuchadnezzar thinks, I am the supreme, all-powerful authority. What I say goes. And in their mindset, the God whom they serve is far greater than the king whom they serve. And they're not going to deny their God in order to obey their king. And even if... Even if our God doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down. We will honor him in spite of what you're telling us to do. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I don't know if somebody had to go up with a, like a thermometer to check it. This is probably just more of a suggestion that he made it really, really hot. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, their trousers, their turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And then the, king, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Now we could stop the story there and it would still be a victory. Three men who are so completely convinced that God is worthy of their lives, that God is worthy to place their trust in, that they are willing to put their lives on the line and say, we're not going to serve you, we're not going to obey you, king, in this instance. And yet, it's when we reach the end of our rope that God gets the glory. I, I heard one person once say, uh, if you want God's address, it's at the end of your rope. And that's where these guys are. They've run out of their options. They no longer have the ability to fix it themselves. 
And now it's an opportunity for God to glorify himself. And that's exactly what he does. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, well, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Now, many theologians will point to this moment and say this is a Christophany, an example of Jesus Christ breaking into the Old Testament before we're introduced to him. Whether it's Jesus, whether it's an angel, it really doesn't matter in this case because the point is still the same. It doesn't make sense rationally that these guys would survive. And yet God protects them in the midst of the fire. He's able to do something that does not make rational sense. So Shadrach, Meshach, uh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. I love the fact that now he starts identifying them by the God that they serve. Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor the hair of their heads been singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was not even the smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praised be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except for their own god. Therefore, I decree to the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I decree that they be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. I just love the way he motivates people. (laughs) That would not fly in my family. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thus ends the story, but I love what God does here because on a day... When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have been justified in bending their knee and saying, let's just survive the day, pretend, and then we'll go back to worshiping Yahweh and and we'll kind of make up for it with our... Instead, they say, no, we're not going to bend. We're not going to compromise even in this area. Even to save our lives, we're not going to compromise. And in so doing, God is able to take them, guys who are at the end of their rope, and glorify himself so that on a day when an idol was intended to be the central focus, instead Yahweh is the central focus. On a day when an idol is intended to be the object of worship, instead it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, that is the object of worship. And it's declared as such by a pagan king nonetheless. Do you see the way that when we are willing to just say it doesn't make sense from a human standpoint, but I am willing to trust my God over and above my own intellect, my own abilities, my own attempts to rationalize and figure and fix this. When we get into the point where we are dependent on God, God gets the glory. When we're willing to stand firm in him, we have a God who is greater than any obstacle, any circumstance, any person that we face. I could, I could stand up here and begin to enumerate the ways that I have seen God show up when I've reached the end of my rope. The ways he has provided financially, both when I was growing up as well as in my own family. The ways I've seen it happen in friends' lives, in the lives of many of you. 
God gets the glory when we've reached the end of our rope and we're still willing to stand and trust in him. And so on a day when an idol was supposed to be the central focus, instead it was God who was. And it's because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not willing to bend their knee and compromise. Now, they stood because of their faith in God, but I don't think it was just that that helped them stand. Because every single time these guys wanted to bend a knee, and I imagine the scripture doesn't suggest that they had questions in their mind about whether or not they should bend their knees. But even Jesus, on the night when he was going to be arrested, had fears. And he was willing to admit them to God. God, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, let it be so. But at the end of the day, your will, not mine, be done. And if Jesus felt that, and these guys are human, then they must have felt some fear, some desire to somehow find a way out. But, not only did they have their faith in God, but they had a guy on either side of them so that every time they wanted to bend a knee, they had these guys holding them up. They borrowed courage from one another. They emboldened one another. They stood together as a unit. And because of that, their unified faith in God gave them the courage to stand in the face of the most powerful man on earth at that time and say, we will not bend a knee. We were not made to journey through life, even journey in our relationship with God alone. We were created for community. And there's a reason why. Of the top ten commandments that God gives us, six of them are focused on our relationship with one another. Because we were created to do life together. We were created for community. God knows that we are going to be attacked. And when we face those attacks, we're not called to face them alone, but face them together. Turn with me. We're just going to look at one other passage to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's towards the end of the Bible. It's right after James and right before 2 Peter, surprisingly. That was a joke. It's a tough crowd. So, (laughs) basically, we... (laughs) To put it bluntly, we live in enemy-occupied territory whether we choose to recognize that fact or not. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he, it was almost like D-Day, the storming of Normandy beaches. Jesus Christ inserting himself into enemy-occupied territory, saying we are no longer going to stand back and simply allow you, Satan, to have your run of the world. And we are like... You know, think, think about back in World War II, we're like people living in France as it's been occupied now by the Nazi party. We're living in enemy-occupied territory. All around us, there's battles raging, whether we choose to recognize that fact or not. If you guys have ever seen the movie um, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, the first of the three installments, there's this part where Aragorn goes to another king and there's a massive army of orcs and, and, and trolls and stuff that's amassing to do battle. And and Aragon is trying to convince this king to prepare his army for battle. And the king goes, I will not risk open battle. I won't risk it to the kingdom. And Aragon says, listen, open battle is upon you whether you choose to recognize that fact or not. The same words could be said for us. Battle is upon us whether we choose to recognize that fact or not. The question is, Are we willing to stand up and fight or are we simply going to be passive pawns 
in a spiritual battle that wages, rages all around us. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone whom he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. You guys ever watched a, a nature program or been to a wild animal park? Maybe some of you guys have been to Africa and maybe have seen lions actually hunting. What type of animals do lions go after? Lame, sick, or old. The ones basically that are isolated from the rest of the herd, right? Whether they're isolated because they're young, they're isolated because they're sick, or even because they're distracted. And the ways that lions attack is they will try to separate or isolate even more that animal so that the rest of the pride can attack it. Lions understand that isolated is equivalent to vulnerable. And our enemy understands this same thing. When we are isolated, we are at our most vulnerable. One of the enemy's ploys, one of the ways that he tries to get us more isolated is he will use shame and guilt. He is a liar. He is a father of lies. And he will accuse us. First, he'll tempt us. And when we give in to that temptation, he will then begin to pummel us. If anybody knew about this, they'd be disgusted. In fact, they would want nothing to do with you. If people knew what a hypocrite you were, if people knew what a failure you were, they'd be disgusted. You'd better hide that. You'd better hope that nobody ever finds out about that. The enemy attacks us in the shadow areas of our lives, those parts that we don't necessarily and don't like to post on our Facebook accounts. That's where he goes after us. And in so doing, unfortunately, our human tendency is that we play right into his hands. When we, sh when we get attacked, our, our response, our healthy response would be to run into community first with God and secondly with others, to be known by them. But instead, we do just the opposite. Like a wounded dog, we go running off and hide and we lick our wounds until we either heal up enough that we feel ready to come back into society or we die. That's our response. It's almost as if when we, feel we, when we feel vulnerable, our desire is to go and hide and be alone, to become even more isolated. And we see how well that works for these animals that lions are trying to attack. That's exactly what Satan wants from us. A healthy response is to be known, to move into community with others, to walk in lockstep with others. Paul, and we don't need to turn here, but in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, Paul is, is basically talking about the same spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. And he says, we have an enemy that's looking to steal, kill, and destroy. And then he begins to talk about the types of armor, the spiritual armor of God that we can put on to protect ourselves. And he's thinking of a Roman centurion as he describes it. And he says, we have a breastplate of righteousness that protects our heart. We have a helmet of salvation that not only protects our mind, but it also identifies us. We're no longer sinners, we're saints because of the salvation that Jesus Christ paid for us. We, are, we have our, the belt of truth that holds all these things together. We have our feet fitted with the, the gospel. We actually get to take the good news to others. 
And then he talks about taking up our shield of faith. It's our faith that can ultimately protect us from the flaming arrows of the enemy. And remember, he's in house arrest when he's writing this. And he's got Roman centurions that are stationed all around the palace guarding. He knows how they go to battle. When they go to battle, they don't walk as individuals. It's not guerrilla warfare. The reason that Rome conquered the world was not because they did really well at guerrilla warfare. They instead worked together as a unit. Roman soldiers were trained to go into battle in what's called a phalanx. And a phalanx is a group of, of soldiers lined up maybe six or seven in the front and then just rows of them all the way back, however large you want to make that phalanx. And they would wa- march in lockstep with one another, their shields literally locked in. We have a picture of it right here. This would be a Roman phalanx going to war. You've got the shields of the guys in front not simply protecting them, but also the guys on the right and left and the guys behind them. You have the guys on the side with their shields protecting not just their flank, but everybody's flank, and the guys behind using their shields above. This is how they would go to battle. When they finally engaged, go ahead and put the next slide up, they would be able to have their spears held through those shields and they would all work together. Because of this, their shields were not simply used to protect themselves, but the guys on the right and the left and behind them. When he says, take up your shield of faith, he's not suggesting that we stand in our own isolated faith by ourselves. We're called to stand in faith with our brothers and sisters. We are stronger together than we are alone. A cord of three strands isn't easily broken. We are called to do life with one another, and oftentimes it's our faith that can support another person in their time of need in the same way that when we are weak, our family, our church community, our friends, the people who know us best can be our strength. I think of the Joneses. Uh, yesterday morning, I got a phone call, and Clarissa Jones, whom most of you guys know, um, had to go in for an emergency appendectomy. And at this point, there's fear. There's, you know, the family is in disarray because Mike's phone's not even working, so he doesn't even know it that his wife is in the emergency room getting operated on. And so the body of crisis community rallies around and we, we were able to help out not only physically helping, you know, get Kobe where he needs to go and, and being there, but also spiritually. Many of you guys who are on our text prayer team, and if you're not and you want to be, let me know and I'll add you on to it, were praying for her throughout the day. And I can tell you now, thankfully, God, you know, we were praying that the right doctors would be doing the operation, that it would go smoothly, that her appendix wouldn't burst. And he answered every single one of those prayers and she's recovering really well now. But we are a community that stands together. We are a community that, and and oftentimes, standing together doesn't look like simply helping tangibly, physically, monetarily, but spiritually, in prayer. When we're at our weakest, we have others to lean on and keep us from bending a knee. And when we are strong, others can lean on us. I think of, of a group of guys that I meet with every Tuesday morning. These are my, this is what I call my triad, my mighty men, the guys who know everything about me, the guys who know even the shadow areas of my life, the stuff that I don't like to talk about up here, the stuff that I wouldn't post on Facebook, they know it all. They pray with me. They pray for me. They hold me accountable. 
those guys give me strength so that when the enemy comes and says, if anybody knew about this, I can go, actually they do. And they still love me. And that doesn't mean that the enemy stops attacking. It simply means that I'm able to stand more firmly because I know that I'm not alone. And I can see his lies for what they are. Lies. And so as I kind of wrap up this morning, the encouragement is not simply to trust in God and be willing to stand firmly in the faith that you have in Him, recognizing that greater is He that's in us than He that is in the world. But also to ask yourself the question, who are your 3 a.m. people, the people that you can call at any time of the day or night and say, I need help? Who are the people that you can confide in? Who are the people who know the shadow areas of your life? Who are the people that you can process with and be real? knowing that they're not going to just tell you what you want to hear, but they're going to lovingly tell you what you need to hear. Who are the people that you can lean on in your time of need? And if you don't know the answer to that question, then my guess is you're probably more isolated and vulnerable than necessary. You're probably dangerously isolated and vulnerable. And my strong encouragement to you is that you begin to pray that God would make very abundantly clear who those 3 a.m. people could be, who your triad could be, who the people you can rely on can be. One of the ways that we try to cultivate that here at Lighthouse is through what Ken mentioned earlier, becoming a part of a small group. We're a smaller church compared to some in the area. And that allows us to be a community and we can do stuff like barbecues after. And I love that we get to do that because there's an opportunity to get to know one another in our community and get to know one another in our church body. But even this is too big to truly be known. And there are times when we can slip in and slip out and, and, and there's not a whole lot of people who will notice. But a small group is an area where you can begin to be known even more intimately. Begin to develop some of those relationships that ultimately could become those type of 3 a.m. relationships. And so I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come forward. And I simply want to encourage us to take the courageous step to be known. To take that courageous step to kind of open ourselves up in those shadow areas and allow one or two other people in. And if perhaps there's some of us this morning who feel a little bit like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are pretty much at the end of our rope. We've pretty much reached the ending point. We're about to break, and we just don't know how we can continue on. I want to pray for you this morning. And so if you guys would bow your heads, let me just close us, and then we'll go into a time of response. God, I thank you that you are so much bigger and so much more powerful than any circumstance, person, even spiritual opposition that we may encounter. And I thank you that you don't sit passively and just watch the world as it spins out of control. I thank you that you are not <laughs> just apart from us. I thank you that you imminently love us and that you join us and that you care about us and know us so intimately. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know the ways that the enemy attacks us. You know the areas that we're most vulnerable. You know the things that we're facing even now. 
And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to stir up in us and help us to recognize what from this morning we need to take and consider. Would you reveal to us the areas of our own weakness? Would you show us where we are vulnerable, where we have been giving into the attacks of the enemy, where we have bought into hook, line, and sinker the lies of the enemy and isolated ourselves? I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to stand strong. I pray that you would give us the courage to invite a couple of other people into those shadow areas and say, here's who I am. Here's what I struggle with. Here's what I need help in. And I pray, Father, that you would show us how we can support our brothers and sisters and how they can support us. And so that we can go through life not as individuals who are simply trying to survive the day, but as a phalanx, an army that can take ground away from the enemy so that we will be more than simply ambassadors of hope and reconciliation, that we will be mighty warriors advancing your kingdom for your namesake, not for our own. So that in a world that loves to hold up idols and say this is worthy of our worship, this is worthy of bending our knee to, God, would you help us to have the strength to no longer compromise, but to stand firmly and say, I will not go there. I will not give in any longer. Not only so that you will protect us, but so that we can be (laughs) your ambassadors and so that your name will be glorified and that our brothers and sisters who don't even realize that you are God and that you love them so that they will come to know you That's our greatest desire. That our neighbors, that our family members, that our co-workers will be saved because of our willingness to submit our lives and say, God, have your way. Jesus, in your holy name, amen.